the Gospel according to Mark chapter 9. We will pick up reading this morning in verse 30 and read to the end of the chapter. Mark 9, 30 through 50. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. Pardon, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, but because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, pardon, who believe, to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The world that we live in is obsessed, completely obsessed with greatness, with success, and often at any cost. So much so that it is not uncommon to hear it described as a dog-eat-dog world. This phrase, a dog-eat-dog world, simply captures the concept of our society that is characterized with ruthless behavior describing the willingness to use any means necessary to get ahead of others, often even harming other people. We are obsessed with greatness and with success. So today, 
In Mark chapter 9, we get to listen in on Jesus having a conversation with his disciples, listening to Jesus, the greatest man to ever exist, listening to what he has to say about true greatness, about what I've titled the sermon, God's greatness, which is not the greatness of God, he is, but it's greatness according to God. What does God have to say about being great? What does God have to say about greatness? How does he define greatness? And before we consider the text any further, I want to draw attention to, you probably noticed it in the reading, that I skipped over a couple of verses. And depending on the translation that you are using, those verses are probably noted in some fashion in the Bible that you are reading. Verses 44 and 46, they're probably either bracketed in your Bible or maybe missing altogether. Um, I want to draw attention to it just for a moment because there's, there's no translation, no matter what Bible translation you have, it, there's none that is denying the judgment of the wicked where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. See verse 48 for proof of this. Verse 48 says the same thing that those other two verses that are omitted say. However, there is a question, a legitimate question, of how many times this phrase was originally written in Mark chapter 9, right? So all translations agree that there were, that there is at least once in this chapter uh, that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched is stated, but some translations include it up to three times, repeated every other verse, 44, 46, 48, So very quickly, manuscripts from the 5th through the 9th centuries contain, many of the manuscripts from the 5th to the 9th centuries contain these additional verses that are in question. But manuscripts that are older from the early 4th century do not contain the repetition of the verses, which leaves two possible scenarios. A scribal edition in the latter years or a scribal deletion in the early years, right? That brings chronological confusion. So what's more likely is, number one, a scribal addition in the latter years. Now, it's not that the scribes are trying to lead us astray or do some damage. As you can see, it doesn't change much of what's there. And you can imagine a scribe being prone to this. I I had this thought as I was reading um, earlier, and I said, I think I said, he will rise again, and again is not there. Well, it is somewhere else in the Bible. It's not an untruth, but it's not what the Bible says right here. So it isn't that it's wrong. It's just that I can't read. However, because it's not entirely impossible for these words to be original, like it is possible. We don't know for sure that Mark didn't include it. And so because of that, modern translations aren't they aren't hiding the fact that there's an issue here. So they don't hide them from us. They don't remove them entirely. They're usually noted in brackets or a footnote or a reference uh, that these additional verses are contained in a large number of original manuscripts of more recent manuscripts. So um, one more thought on that. These types of issues do not, should not cause us to doubt the veracity of God's word the truthfulness of it, but rather increase our trust in it, recognizing the amazing preservation that God has accomplished, and he's done so using human agency 
all along the way so that we can have confidence this morning as we open up the Bible, we are reading the Word of God that He has provided to us. All right, back to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. So we're going to walk through the entire passage, 30 through 50, in using five points to do so. The first point is gospel centrality. Verses 30 to 32. The second point, greatness standard. 33 to 37. Then giving a cup of water, 38 to 41. Then going to hell, 42 to 48. And then good salt, 49 and 50. So gospel centrality in the life of Jesus. We briefly looked at verses 30 through 32 last week. Jesus and his disciples went out. They began to go through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know about it. He was teaching his disciples. He was telling them, just talking straight forward to them about what was going to come, that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Note the glaring issue in the context of the passage here and and what's going on, that they do not understand the truths of the gospel, what we would call the simple truths of the gospel for us. It wasn't so simple for them. I'm not throwing them under the bus because I'm way too much like them. I would rather not back the bus over myself. But the glaring issue here of how self-absorbed they are while not actually understanding the truths that Jesus is laying down for them. Now, this is often the case, if not always, right? These things come together. When we don't adequately understand the truth of the gospel, it's probably because we're really consumed with ourself. It's like two sides of the same coin, not just for the disciples, but also in our own lives. The disciples are fearful to ask about gospel realities. They were afraid to ask him, verse 32 says. They're happy, as we see right after this, to discuss their own personal greatness, arguing about which one of them might be the greatest, but fearful to ask Jesus about gospel realities. They are selfish and jealous and seeking after status and pursuing a position, and yet unwilling in the midst of their understanding to simply ask Jesus, tell us more about this gospel. Tell us more about this good news. Tell us more about how it's going to impact us. We see the story continue to play out in verses 33 and following. They came to Capernaum. This is God's standard of greatness. Jesus began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? So they have walked together. Jesus asked, what is it that you were talking about? God here uses his own standard of measurement. We see this being displayed time and again in the scriptures, but it's really spelled out wonderfully clear here for us. Jesus says, what were you discussing along the way? You remember what they said? Nothing. They kept silent. Jesus knew what they were discussing. It's not like he heard part of it and wondered how they finished the story or who responded to it. He knew exactly what they were talking about. 
Now imagine it from Jesus' standpoint. Imagine how burdening it must have been for him. He's facing the cross. We know that's on his mind. He just said, I will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill me and I will be raised again. He's carrying the burden of the cross before him. And now those that he has been training for three years are arguing about which one is the greatest. So he's dealing with his disciples disputing amongst one another. Arguing with the scribes earlier in the chapter, right after they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, was bad enough. He actually asked his disciples the same question when he came to the bottom of the mountain. What were you discussing with them? Look, at, look back at verse 16. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with them? And neither the disciples nor the scribes were willing to speak up in that situation, but it was actually the father of the boy who needed a healing from Jesus. So they're not discussing with the scribes anymore, but now they're disputing with one another about which one of them was the greatest. I wonder why they chose now, again, to be silent, right? Jesus is right there. He's just asked, what are you talking about? Just settle the matter. Why don't they just ask him? You've got his full attention. Just ask him who the greatest is. Now, I'm not really wondering why they didn't do it, because they, not unlike us, do sense the embarrassing shame of the situation. I mean, consider what the conversation would have been like between these disciples, Peter, James, and John, for instance. The three of us, we saw something, we can't tell you about it. Even if we were allowed to, it's indescribable. Let's just say it was amazing. Jesus must really like us better. I mean, I'm sure he likes you too, but maybe you're just not ready yet. Maybe you're just not mature enough. I mean, in fact, if we had not been with him, separated from you other nine, maybe one of us three could have handled the gentleman's demon-possessed son. I mean, such a foolish argument for multiple reasons, not to mention that the argument doesn't appear to be just the way I've set it up here as a possibility between the three and the nine, but the nine appear to be in the midst of the conversation of the argument as well, discussing who's the greatest, and they themselves just experienced a failure to cast out the demon. This sounds an awful lot like what we might sound like in a situation similar. And again, we can understand that. They, they know that they're a part of something wonderful. What they're a part of isn't normal. But they're experiencing the life of Christ up close and personal. They know that it's something wonderful. They know it's different than anything that they've experienced previously. They probably can, can feel and sense as they witness the hints from the Old Testament that are coming to life in the Messiah that was promised of old that is coming to life before them. But they, they wrongly think that it is somehow about themselves rather than about Jesus. Because they lack humility. And they have an, this inner desire for success, for significance. They're, they're seeking greatness for the sake of themselves. When real greatness 
by God's standards, is measured by humility and obedience. J.C. Ryle said, Of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. Ryle says it very well. So Jesus speaks into their conversation without them ever admitting what their conversation was about. Just like the father of the needy boy did previously. Jesus posed the question to his disciples. They were silent. He answers with a one-liner, a real zinger of a shot at them. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is quite the counter-cultural declaration, not just in the days when Jesus spoke this, but in our day. It's not just counter-cultural, it's counter-natural. But in this one statement, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all, Jesus refutes their misunderstanding Jesus answers their unstated inquiry. Jesus exposes their misguided expectation. Jesus solves their unstated predicament, and he provides a guide for the remainder of their lives. If you want to be first, if you want to be great, here's how you do it. Last of all, servant of all. Jesus even goes about this in a way that he doesn't make a comparison between the disciples. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. In Luke's gospel, what Luke records is this, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Even there, it's really wonderful to see that Jesus doesn't say that one is the greatest. There's no comparison and no contrast. Like Those who are great are those who are seeking Christ first, who are last of all and servant of all. It's an equal opportunity in the kingdom of God, to be great. And if you're seeking to be first, Jesus says, go for it. Be the first one to jump in when there's a job to be done. Be the first one to offer your help when there's a need. Be the first one to volunteer as opportunities are made known. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Don't forget, earlier in the day, Jesus had explained what success and greatness would look like for him, the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. This is what greatness looked like for Jesus. The admiration that we long for in our humanity For Jesus, it wasn't admiration, but it was humiliation. He was despised and forsaken and not highly esteemed. The control that we grasp for and that we long for, what did it look like in Jesus' life? It looked like allowing betrayal by the closest of his friends the ones that are here arguing about which one is the greatest. That honor that we crave and seek after, what did that look like for Jesus? He refused 
to speak in his own defense when the accusations were made against him. And Jesus further drives the point home with a picture in verse 36. Taking a child, he sets a child before the disciples. Taking the child in his arms, he said to his disciples, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Jesus makes his point with a picture. It's a dramatization of the truth that he has just stated from verse 35. The point that he's making has nothing to do with children. Jesus is not saying that orphanage work is the only way to receive him. The point is this, children during this time were considered completely insignificant. Not only that, Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic, and in Aramaic, the word for servant and the word for child is exactly the same. The picture Jesus is portraying is not a sentimental picture of how sweet Jesus is to receive the children and we should do the same and just minister to children. Jesus is using the picture of taking the child in his arms to make clear that no one, no child, no servant, is insignificant to him, no matter how insignificant society might attempt to prove that they are. Jesus is using the picture to clarify that no one is insignificant to his people. Jesus is not just saying, we hear him saying that, we see him saying this. He's not just saying, this child is not insignificant to me. He's saying, this child is not insignificant to my people. And if you are my people, he's saying that in his kingdom, his people will receive society's least. And he makes the point even more clear as he continues there in verse 37, whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Here is how to be received into the Father's kingdom. Here's how to be one with me and one with the Father. And if we flip the statement, it brings even more clarity to the point that Jesus is making. Whoever refuses to receive anyone also refuses to receive me. And everyone who refuses to receive me also refuses him, that is, my Father who sent me. The picture that Jesus paints with his words and with his actions is helpful and abundantly clear. It's helpful in our world that is obsessed with greatness and with success. God's greatness is measured by what seems like foreign standards. And they're not really foreign, but they are supernatural. But just because they're supernatural doesn't mean that they're unknown or unattainable. God's greatness, according to God's Word, Greatness, according to God, is measured by humility, by putting others first, by having a preoccupation with Jesus, by having a commitment to Christ's people, to His church. And we should note here that none of what Jesus is teaching here results in an abdication of authority. There are still authority structures all throughout the Scriptures. 
But what Jesus is teaching has to do with the disposition of our hearts. And what Jesus expects is us to serve all people, serving superiors and serving inferiors. It is a humble walking with him. It is a humble, sometimes even hidden service to fellow church members or to fellow mankind. This is what Jesus calls us to, this standard of greatness that is measured by God, and God doesn't measure greatness in the same way that we do. Which brings us to the next point, verse 38, giving a cup of water. John said, again, just imagine the setting here. We're not transitioning weeks here from one statement to the next. This is a conversation. Jesus has just made this point that they are super concerned about themselves and not concerned about him and the gospel and the truth. So John, the apostle, speaks up and says, teacher, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Imagine this. Jesus has just said, this is who will be received by me. This is what being in my kingdom looks like. This is what my disciples will look like. They will receive the least and the lost unto themselves and among themselves. And John immediately tries to draw a line between them and others. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not following us. He wasn't doing it the way we would do it. Jesus said, do not hinder him. There is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Part of the disciples' problem here is that they were fighting the wrong enemy. That they didn't have the wisdom to understand that the battle was between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And it's absolute supreme irony that they were just unable themselves to cast out a demon, and now they're bothered because someone else is able to cast out a demon, and they're trying to stop him. They're, they are so critical of anyone else anyone else even doing a good thing. They're upset about this freelance exorcist because he's not one of them. They fail to realize that they do not have a monopoly on God's work. And they are struggling with self-importance, arrogantly assuming that only they are right. Who knows why? because they've just recently failed. But like we know from experience, that doesn't really matter because we can fall down, fall down, fall down, and it seems like before we're all the way up, we're proud and arrogant again. And we see that happening in the disciples' lives here. But what we also see in the midst of their lack of wisdom the supreme irony, the critical spirit, 
the struggle with self-importance, the arrogant assumptions, Jesus is patient with them. His patience, his response to them is remarkable. It's amazing. Aren't you glad that he's this patient with us? That he's this patient towards you? When you lack wisdom, when you make a poor choice, when you're critical, when you struggle with self-importance, when you arrogantly assume that you're right, aren't you glad that he is this patient again and again with you? Competition Christianity is flawed Christianity. It is terribly flawed. But it's real. And it ought to be put to death. That's what Jesus is trying to do here is put it to death. I mean, he says, if he's not against us, then he's for us. Like, why are you stopping them from doing what you couldn't do? Imagine going to war. And in your foxhole, you are flanked to the left and to the right with guys that can outshoot you. Okay? They have better accuracy, better consistency, better gifts, better talent with the firearm. The enemy is approaching. How many of you are complaining about these guys that are flanking you being more qualified at taking out the enemy than you are? It would be absurd. Competition Christianity is flawed. No one's going to complain about that situation. Why would we complain about others who have the right enemy in their sights? Why would we compete with those who are with us and not against us? Now, granted, some say that they're with us when in fact they're against us and against Christ, but Christ is not dealing with that situation here. Christ is making abundantly clear that infighting among his people is absurd and it ought to be avoided at all cost. Rather than taking every opportunity to step on one another on the ladder of success in this dog-eat-dog world that we live in. Jesus goes on further to say that even the tiniest of measures that we take in our lives towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ are evidence of whose side that we're on. Look in verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink... Because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. The smallest of actions, something as simple as giving a cup of water, they have great significance, not because of the deed itself, but because it's done for Jesus. The action itself, big, small, in between, is irrelevant. That's not the determining factor. The determining factor is how it relates to Jesus. That's what gives it its value and its significance. He who is not against us is for us. May God help us to be completely convinced that competition Christianity is flawed and is against Christ and Christ's teaching at its core. And Jesus continues the next point, going to hell, verse 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, this is quite the shift in Jesus' language here between verse 41 and 42. He's gone from 
preaching tolerance of all who are serving his kingdom in some manner to being absolutely intolerant of everyone who causes a little one to stumble and intolerant, as we'll read the rest of it in just a moment, of everything that causes you to stumble. The warnings here from Jesus are for us to be where be aware that we do not drag someone away from God, that we do not lead someone into sin, that we do not cause others to sin, and that we are also aware of those things that cause us to sin. Let's read the rest of the passage. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Graphic pictures painted with Christ's words. Go back to the, to the initial one. It would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Imagine a millst- wearing a millstone like a necklace. If you, if you can't picture a millstone, if you go left when you leave here today, there are two millstones just down the road here on each side of a driveway entrance. But massive, think of a massive concrete wheel, hole in the middle, massive concrete. Imagine wearing it like a necklace, right? 100 pounds plus, easy, around your neck, being tossed overboard into the deep blue sea. Your body becoming human coral, waving in the sea. Jesus paints a very graphic picture of what ought to happen to those who lead little ones into sin or into stumbling. It's a very serious matter to Jesus. And he makes a seamless connection between the responsibility that we have not to cause others to stumble to the responsibility that we have to keep our own lives free from sin. And he remains consistent with the graphic language. And we should also be clear with this graphic language that Jesus is not calling for physical mutilation, but rather spiritual mortification. When he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. The point is, every part of your life should be consecrated to him. That the hand, the foot, the eye, it encompasses the totality of life. What we do, where we go, what we see. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your deeds and your actions are sinful and not pleasing to the Lord, if there are hidden activities and habits that you're engaging in, Jesus says, mortify that sin. Put it to death. Strangle the air that it breathes and be done away with it. Or if your foot causes you to stumble, if, if you're going to places that you have no business being, that result in, maybe the place itself is not a problem, but it results in temptations, and you give in again and again. Jesus said, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet and be cast into hell. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, Jesus says. Coveting eyes, lusting eyes that lead to stealing, more envying in the heart, or putting things before your eyes that are immoral and profane. Jesus says it's better to throw it out and enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell. Here's the directions from Jesus regarding sin in our own lives. Cut, cut, throw. Cut, cut, throw. Cut and throw what exactly? Look again, verse 43, whose hand? Your hand. Verse 45, whose foot? Your foot. Verse 47, whose eye? Your eye. Not someone else's. Jesus is not telling you to pick and pluck and gouge out and cut off other people's sins. He's saying deal with your own. He's telling us, your hand, my hand, your foot, my foot, your eye, my eye. Make a decisive and complete severing of that sin from your life. Better a little blood on the ground now, sticking with his graphic illustration, than our lives in hell forever. That is what he's saying. Deal with the sin now so that you don't end up losing your soul. Where, in verse 48, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Because the punishment for those who do not believe and who do not deal with their sins seriously, which are the same people, is everlasting torment separated from all of the attributes of God, we might say, except his white-hot wrath, which will be poured out on you forever and ever. And Mark is quoting here from the prophet Isaiah 66 that we read earlier. Isaiah had declared that all peoples will see the glory of God on that day. And he tells us about the new heavens and the new earth where God's people will live And the prophet, along with Jesus, warns those who do not believe that if you do not believe, you will be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The torment, the separation, the nightmare will never, ever end. Which is why God sent his son to provide salvation and a way out and eternal life for those who believe. You, this morning, if you are on the path to destruction, if you are entrenched in sin, you don't have to stay there. You can run to Christ and find forgiveness. In find salvation, repenting of your sin and trusting in him, him who died, who lived and died and was raised again, and who is coming back. And finally, fifthly, verse 49 and 50, good salt, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, 
with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. For those on the outside of Christ's kingdom, it's the fires of hell. For those on the inside of his kingdom, it's the fires of persecution. They are temporary. So the fires of persecution are for God's people, and eternal bliss will be for them. For those who do not belong to God, life might be fairly simple now, comparatively speaking, but it will be the fires of hell forever and ever. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. When we think of someone being salty in our present context, we think they're negatively rude and bitterly angry, but that's not the Bible's definition of being salty. Rather, it's a distinctively attractive person with a quality of preservation, having a preserving influence in a decaying world. We're called to be salt and light. In fact, taking it a step further, salt many times in the Scriptures refers to a sacrifice. Listen to Leviticus 2.13, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So every sacrifice that the people of God were bringing, they were commanded to bring it with salt. When the apostle writes to the Romans, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, your salty bodies, a living and holy or salty sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Salt is good. We're called to be a people who are distinctively attractive in the world. Think about it practically for a moment. Salt makes you what? Thirsty. Are our lives making the world thirsty for Christ? That's what it means to be salt in this world. Are we making those that we come into contact with thirsty for Christ? Now, pulling back from just those final two verses for a moment and thinking about the entire passage as we close, the disciples go from arguing with the scribes to arguing with one another about who's the greatest And Jesus says to them, finally here, be at peace with one another. That is definitely what they lacked. And we will never be at peace with one another until we are at peace with God. The greatness that we've considered in light of who God is, God's greatness is revealed in our relationships with with one another. The disciples failed so much time and again. We've drawn out all of these issues that they've had and failures that they've experienced. But they had so much revelation, seeing Jesus day in and day out, and still they faltered. And we're tempted, I feel it in myself, to respond with a hopeless response. If they couldn't do it with all they had, I'm doomed. There's no hope. These guys fell asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus leading the prayer meeting. 
They suggested idol worship right to Christ's face. Remember what Peter said, hey, let's build tabernacles for all three of you. Not the Trinity, but Moses and Elijah along with Jesus. They attempted to do what only God can do at the bottom of the mountain, trying to cast out demons without praying about it. They took their eyes off the cross, and when Jesus talked to them about the cross, it's as if their fingers were in their ears as they continued seeking glory for themselves, fighting against the wrong enemy. The man who's casting out demons, but not part of the in crowd. Those who are against us are those who are not against us are for us. All along the way, they lacked listening. They failed to have faith. They struggled to keep focus. Humility was missing. Understanding was poor. Wisdom was lacking, and love was not present. How can we, if this is who they are, these disciples, how then can we progress? Are we not doomed? No, not at all. Because we've been given so much more. Initially, their example to learn from. And we have the Scriptures, the Word of God to open and, and see the reality of who He is and to learn from their example And we have the Holy Spirit that has come in a greater measure than they knew at this time. And we have one another to link arms in this trek through life. And we have the patience of Jesus, who was patient with them, and He never changes. The same yesterday, today, and forever. His patience is towards us who believe. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Him. Keep our hearts attached to Him, placing all our hope in Him, trusting wholeheartedly in Him, and resting completely, fully in His finished work for us. May God help us to recognize what greatness is according to God and to seek Him with our whole hearts. And trusting that he then will have his way in our lives. And he will be glorified. And it will be for our immediate, eventual, and eternal good. Let's pray. God, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for one another. And we pray, God, that you'll take the truth as it is in Jesus and impress it deep into our souls, affecting every aspect of our lives, that we might live ever before you as a people who love you, who walk with you, who seek to obey you. God, make our lives increasingly salty that more of those around us might come looking for you, the water of life. God, you alone have the words of life. You're the only one who can satisfy. God, I pray now as we close this morning that you would satisfy those who are longing for more of you, for your children 
who want more communion and closer communion, that you'll grant grace to deal with sin appropriately. And God, for those who are standing back, reluctant to come, to repent, to believe, God, change their hearts. Draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.